Well, here's something that I think all of us know is true. We are motivated by something. And maybe it's a few things, but there are things in our lives that motivate us. Uh, For some of us, it's the thing that gets us out of bed in the morning. Maybe it's the thing that dictates how you live and decisions you make. There is something in your life and maybe a few things that motivate your decisions, that motivates the life you choose to live. So I wanted to find out what are some of those motivators? What are some of those things that motivate us in life? And so I went to Facebook and did a little poll, all right? And I got some feedback. Maybe some of you in this room, you remember this. But I asked this question on my Facebook a couple of weeks ago. What motivates you the most in life? All right, and I got a crap load of answers. So I'm going to give you some of these because I think you can identify with them. So what motivates you most in life? Here's what some people said. First, food and coffee, all right? So... Uh, raise your hand if you're one of those coffee people. You're like, I get out of the bed just to drink coffee and just, you know, keep going. Uh, some of you love coffee. You're motivated, right? That's the thing that gets you up. That's the thing that keeps you going. Uh, I am not a coffee fan. I'm not a coffee drinker, but I am highly motivated by food. Uh, and especially if we're talking about the Lord's chicken, Chick-fil-A, I will almost do anything for Chick-fil-A, right? I, I love it. Very, very motivated by that. So another one uh, that someone wrote is revenge. All right, so uh, I'm not going to say who wrote this. They're in the room. I'll give you that, all right? So you narrow it down. But um, my, the, the post is still live on my Facebook. So later today, if you want to go onto my Facebook and just creep down a little bit, you'll find out who that person is and then watch your back, all right? <laughs> a little terrifying. Uh, that person knew I was going to put it, and I didn't tell them why. So there you go. All right, so let's get to some real serious ones, some that actually did, uh, I think, all of us resonate with. Success. Right? So many of us, we are motivated by success, that we want to achieve personal goals, professional goals. Maybe at work you want to climb the corporate ladder. Like You just want to be successful. Everything you do, parenting, whatever it is, you want to be seen as a success. And so that motivates you in many ways. Maybe uh, this is one you can identify with. Some people put comfort and security that you're motivated to do whatever you can, whatever you need to, to insulate your life from any pain or suffering. You just want a comfortable, secure life, and that is your motivation. A couple other people put pleasure, right? So you just want to have fun. You want to do whatever you can to enjoy this life, the next experience, the next thing you get to do. You just see life as this one big party, and that motivates you to do whatever you can to get that pleasure, to make sure you're happy and you get what you want. Another one, people put kids, all right? So parents, I think you can feel me on this. I'm with you. Like, kids are a big motivator. We want to provide for our kids. We want to protect our kids. We want to make sure they're successful, right? Make sure they are comfortable and have security. And so our kids become a very big motivator in the decisions we make and the life we choose to live. And then there's two more, and these were the most popular two. Uh, And the first of those two is what other people think of me. Right, this was by far one of the most popular ones. So many people put, what motivates me, if I'm honest, is I want other people to like me. Or I want other people to approve of me. Or I want other people to want to be around me. And so other people's opinions, their thoughts of you, that controls you. That motivates you. You want people to like you. You want people to want to be around you. And so that motivates the decisions you make and the life you live. And then you get to the last one, money. All right? All of us can probably get that. We are motivated by money. 
Maybe for you, it's you want to make more money, and so you're motivated to do that. Maybe it's saving more money, and that ties into even comfort and security, that you view money as a way to be comfortable and secure. And so you're motivated by money. Now, as humans, I think all of us can identify with one of these or a few of these, but let me give you an example of the last one from my own life. So I am highly motivated to make a couple extra bucks, all right? I work for a church. I got to do what I got to do, right? Uh, But here's the thing. So I I like making a few bucks here and there. And so one of the things I started doing a while back is I I have an app that I started using where you take pictures of receipts. And so anytime you get a receipt, take a picture of it and you get points. Oh, anyone use the app? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Oh, wow. Look at you guys. You're here with me, all right? Uh, So you you get these points and then you can accumulate enough points and turn them in for cashback rewards, gift cards, all that. What I didn't know when I signed up, and maybe there's a better app out there, but the one I use, it takes a long, long, long time. And so after about two and a half years of snapping receipts and asking my wife over and over to keep her receipts, and I'm digging them out of the trash can because I found out it doesn't have to be your receipt, just anything. So I just find them wherever, right? Uh, but if you t- I finally got enough that I got a Chipotle gift card, right? And it took me so long, and it was $25. So I got me some lunch, fed the kids. It was great, right? But that took me a long time. And the thing that motivated me, right, the only reason for two years I took picture after picture after picture is because I wanted a little extra money, right? And people get that. We do silly things for money. That's why we do so many of these things with rewards, with money, because we are motivated by money. Now, all those things on that list, these are not bad things. None of those things are bad. However, they are probably not the prime motivators we should have as followers of Jesus, that there's probably some bigger and better things that we should be motivated by than what we see on the screen. And you might be wondering, okay, Austin, what are those things? What should I be motivated by as a follower of Jesus? And the good news is the Apostle Paul is going to tell us that this morning as we look at the passage we find ourselves in in 2 Corinthians this morning. So as we continue through 2 Corinthians, we get to a passage where Paul is basically going to say, here's what motivates me. Here's what motivates me for life and for my ministry And my argument this morning is I think we too should be motivated by these same things that Paul is going to tell us. So with that in mind, let me go ahead and give you the first one. The first motivator Paul gives us is fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. He says this, we're picking up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So to understand what Paul is getting at here, you have to understand that phrase, the fear of the Lord. That's a very popular phrase throughout Scripture, but unfortunately, it's misunderstood a lot of times as we read it. So the reason is, really, when we use the word fear, we mean it uh, in the sense that we are afraid of something, or we are, we are afraid of someone. So for an example, uh, I'm afraid of snakes. Anyone else afraid of snakes? Right. Amen. That's a good, yeah. Snakes are terrible, so I'm afraid of them, right? I am absolutely terrified. So the other day, I'm running, and I was, in a tra- I was on a trail somewhere running, and I run, and there's this snake that just shows up right there, right? And in my mind, I'm like, it's a seven-foot snake. It's like a half a foot. It was a little tiny thing. But I see it, and I freak out. What do I do? I run the opposite way. I literally stop running and go, I'm never running this trail again, ever again. I never want to come back. 
because I'm afraid of that snake. That is how I use the word fear. I fear snakes. Now, when you read fear in the Bible, it doesn't have that same idea of being afraid of someone or something. Instead, when the Bible says we are to fear, particularly fearing God and how we view him and approach him, it's this, that we are to have a healthy respect and reverence for God and who he is. And in light of that, we realize who we are. So fearing God is realizing that he is holy, he is good, he is just, he is the ruler of this world. And we realize in light of that and who he is, we are not. And we are accountable to him. And we must humble ourselves before him. It doesn't carry the idea of alarm or panic. One commentator said it this way. He says, it's not hopelessly trembling in guilt or shame, but responding to Christ in a way that accords with who he is. And so fearing the Lord is realizing who God is, realizing who he is as a person and how he is the ruler and judge and the authority over all of us. And in light of that, we respond to him with humility. We respond to him with submission. And so Paul says that motivates me. The way I live life, the way I do ministry, it's motivated by having this proper reverence, respect for God. Now in the passage, you might've caught it, Paul mentions a few ways this motivates him. And one of the things he says is he's motivated because he's going to stand before Christ one day. Now, as I read that, you might be smart enough to go, no, he didn't. He didn't say he's going to stand before Christ, but he does give us a hint. At the beginning of that passage, he uses the word, therefore. Whenever you read the word, therefore, in scripture, you should always stop and look at what just came before that. Because when the biblical writers use the word, therefore, they're basically saying, in light of everything that I just said, here's something, here's a truth, here's something you need to do with it. And so Paul's pointing back at the passage we looked at last week. And last week, Pastor Sean gave a great sermon, and in the passage he covered, at the end, he got to a verse that talked about, we, Paul was saying, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That you and I as believers, our salvation's not in question, that is good, but we will stand before God one day and give an account for how we lived and how we served him. And Paul says, knowing that, knowing I'm going to stand before God one day, I fear him. I have a respect. I have a reverence for him that I'm going to have to stand before him one day. And Paul says that is a big motivator to stay faithful, to keep doing ministry, to keep following Jesus because I'm going to have to stand before him one day. But then Paul also said the fear of the Lord is also comes out in the sense that he knows he is known by God. See, Paul's ministry was questioned, it was doubted, but Paul knew at the end of the day what mattered was that God knew him. He didn't care if his opponents didn't truly know him or truly didn't understand him because he feared God above them. He knew that God knew him better than anyone else knew him, and that's why he had confidence. See, like I said, Paul, throughout his ministry, he had people constantly opposing him. Constantly giving him accusations, saying, you're not a true apostle, you're not doing the right thing, or you don't have this lofty speech, or you don't give these great speeches like other people of your day. But that didn't shake Paul. That didn't mess with Paul. Why? Because he feared God above fearing man. He says, I am known by God. God looks past the outward appearances like everyone else, and he sees my motives, he sees my heart. And that should be encouraging to us. Right? As we live for Jesus, as we serve him, a lot of people is going to question you. A lot of people is going to doubt you. A lot of people might think you're crazy. Right? They might not understand the way that you live, but that's when you can go, you know what? I don't fear them. I know at the end of the day, I fear the Lord. He's the one I have to stand before one day. He's the one that knows my heart. So think about it 
uh, or think back to those uh, answers to that Facebook question I gave you earlier. You know, all those different things, success, money, all that. One of the things that I said motivated so many of us is what other people think of us. And really what that comes down to, if that's you, and I've been there as well, I know, that at the end of the day, what that means is that you fear man above fearing God. That we ultimately fear other people's opinions, approval, thoughts of us. We care way more about that than what we care about God's approval of us. So here's a question we have to wrestle with. Is at the end of the day, whose approval am I living for? Are you living for the approval of others, of man, or are you living for the approval of God? And there's some of you in this room, I know you, you are living for the approval of man, that you find your value, you find your dignity, you try to find your worth, you find your identity, and what other people think about you and say about you. And if you're on that hamster wheel, it is never going to end. That's exhausting. You are never going to get their full approval. And if you keep living for it, you're only going to get more burned out. Because the only person that can give you approval, the only person who gives you true identity and worth and value is God. And so we live for his approval, not the approval of man. So Paul says, you know, what motivates me in life and ministry is that I fear the Lord. And I fear the Lord above the fear of man. But then Paul's going to give us a second motivator. And the motivator that he gives next is the love of Christ, the love of Christ. He continues in verses 14 and 15, and this is what he says. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for for him or for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul says, okay, the second thing that motivates me is that Christ has shown his love for me, that he's shown his love for me in dying for me. And Paul says the love of Christ does what? He says controls, right? That's a, that's a really heavy, that's a, that's a strong word Paul uses there because he wants you to know what he's saying is that the thing that controls my decisions, the, things that control, the thing that controls the way I live is the love of Christ. And what did the love of Christ do? It led him to do exactly what the pastor says two times. He died for all. Christ died for you. Christ died for me. Christ died for all of us. Why? Because he loves us. And I think it's so easy, right, if you've been in church for a long time, been following Jesus for a long time, it's so easy to get almost jaded and comfortable with that idea, right? Yeah, Jesus loves me. He died for me. I get it. But when was the last time you really let that sink in? He died for you. He died for me. You and I were sinners deserving of death, and he stepped in our place and died in our place, and his death covers our sin. And he does that out of love. He did it because he loves you. He loves me. And Paul says that love motivates me to continue following him. That love motivates me to serve him. Now notice also Paul points out in this passage, he says there's a result of this. That if you truly experience the love of Christ like that, Paul says there is a result that should happen. And this is the result. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, the whole result of you experiencing the love of Christ is that then you can die to your old life and you can start living a new life for Jesus. When you truly experience what Christ has done for you and you accept that love, it results in living for him. Now, the order is very important. You've got to get the order right. 
Because he's not saying, Paul's not saying you love Jesus or you live for Jesus to earn his love. That's religion. That's not what the gospel and the Bible teaches. Instead, what it is, is Christ has loved us. He's already died for us. We sing about that. He already did it. He showed us his love. And in response to that, we then live for him. We don't live for him to earn his love. We live for him because he has already shown us love. That's the gospel. That is Christianity. And one of the things this passage does is it pushes back on the idea that Jesus is nothing more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. Right? So many professing Christians, and maybe this is you, but, but many Christians who claim to be Christians, they see Jesus as nothing more as someone to make sure they don't go to hell one day. They prayed a prayer, they walked an aisle, they had an experience when they were little, and they say, okay, I got my ticket, I'm not going to go to hell. And if someone views Jesus this way, typically what it results in is not living for him. It results in a life where there's no love for Christ, there's no uh, growth in Christ, there's no discipleship, there's no change. Why? Because for them, they just view Jesus as a way to escape hell. And Paul says, I don't leave room for that. The Bible doesn't leave room for that. Why? Because the Bible says he died for us so that we might live for him. And so when you accept Christ, yes, he's your savior. You don't go to hell one day, praise the Lord, but he also becomes your Lord. And you live every single day with him as your Lord. You live the rest of your life for him. He died for you so that you can live and start living that new life for him right now until you get to heaven one day. John Calvin sums it up this way. He says, everyone who truly considers and ponders the wonderful love that Christ has shown us in his death cannot but be bound to him by the tightest chain so as to devote himself to his service. Right? If you and I truly experience the love of Christ, the result is not that we just go on living however we want. The result is not that we just say, hey, thanks God for the ticket out of hell. I'll see you in heaven one day. No. The result is that we live for him and we are bound to him and say, I love you. I want to follow you. I want to give my life to you. That is the result of experiencing the love of Christ. And so think about it this way. Let's say uh, you needed a vital organ. Let's say you were on your deathbed and if you didn't get an organ, you were going to die. And someone came along and donated you that organ. What do you think your response would be? Would it be apathy? Would it be like, oh, thanks, man. Good luck, right? No, it probably wouldn't be. Like, you would probably have so much gratitude for that person. You would probably have so much love for that person. You would probably go on the rest of your life living and honor that person, saying, man, thank you for what you've done. There would be a bond between you. You wouldn't just go on living. Let's say that person died. When they donated their organ to you, they passed away, and they were perfectly healthy, but you get to go on living. Think about how much your gratitude would grow for them. Think about how you would think about them. And in the same way, Paul's saying, you know what? Christ died for us. The perfect God-man who didn't deserve to die, who did ha- had no sin, died for us. And our response to that should not just be, thanks for getting us out of hell. Our response is, I'm going to live every single day for you as the Lord of my life in response to your love. Now, as I was writing this sermon, the question kept coming back to me, and I want to ask you the same question because it's really hit me hard this week is this, is when was the last time I was moved by the love of Christ? Like, think about it. Like, we come into church. Like, we know, yeah, Christ loves us. We'll sing some songs. That's awesome. But, like, when was the last time the weight of the love of Christ and what he went through for you truly, truly moved you? Like, moved you to not just say thank you, but moved you to say, I give you everything. I give you my life. I want to keep living for you. 
And for some of us in this room, we've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and we've kind of lost some of that wonder. We've lost some of the awe. We've lost some of that just awestruck of, God, look what you did for me. And I'm right there with you. And God's been bringing me back to John 3.16 recently, one of the most you know, overused, easy verses everyone knows. I've said it a million times, but man, how many times have I said that verse and not stopped and go, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's love. And when was the last time I was moved by that? And maybe if you're in the same boat with me, maybe our prayer this morning is, hey, God, would you remind me of your love? Would you remind me of what you did so I could be right with you? Now, some of you in this room, maybe you're new to your faith. You just started walking with Jesus and you're like, Austin, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I wake up every day. I'm fire for the Lord. I love it. I'm motivated. And if that's you, praise God. And I hope your prayers, you say, God, please, through your spirit, don't ever let that die out. Keep reminding me every day of your love. Help me to keep growing in that. And then let me just say, I think there's some of you in a room this size I know. There's some of you that you have heard this a million times. You have heard people say God loves you. Maybe your parents have told you a million times God loved you. And I just want to come here to say one more time, God loves you and he died for you. And maybe this morning you need to respond to that love for the first time. You need to say, you know what? You're not just some get out of hell free. No, you are savior and Lord. And I want to accept your gift and I want to live for you because you died for me. You know, there's a great hymn, a great hymn, a classic hymn called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And in that hymn, it talks about everything Christ has done for us. And the hymn ends with these lines. It says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Right? The only logical response to the love of Christ is that. What Christ has done for us, the only thing we can do in response is say, Jesus, I give you everything. I give you my life. I give you every single part of it. And Paul says that motivated him. The love of Christ for him motivated him to keep living for Jesus, keep serving him well, no matter how hard it got. So Paul's already said, okay, the fear of the Lord motivates me. The love of Christ motivates me, but then he's going to give us one more. And he says, the third thing that motivates me is the new life, the new life I've been given in Christ. This is what he says in verses 16 and 17. From now on, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul says, okay, the third thing that motivates me is that I have been given new life in Christ. I am a totally different person. I am a new creation. And notice Paul kind of pinpoints a couple of things that's changed in his life. The first is he says, my perspective has changed. He says, I used to regard, or I don't regard no one to the flesh anymore. Then he says, I used to regard Christ according to the flesh, which I regard him thus no longer. See, before Paul met Jesus, he regarded Jesus as nothing more than a man. To him, Jesus was a crazy dude who claimed to be God, who was causing a ruckus in the Jewish religion. And he said, I got to stop Christianity. So he went out and killed Christians. But when he met Jesus, everything changed. He started to view Jesus not as some crazy prophet, some other dude. He started saying, no, that's the Lord of this earth. That's the Savior of this world. That's the Messiah. That's not just a man in flesh. That's a man, yes, 100% humanity, flesh, but also 100% God. He is the perfect God-man. And his perspective of Jesus changed. But notice that also changed his perspective of other people. 
Paul says we no longer regard other people to the flesh. What does he mean by that? What it means is he knows now that if Jesus truly died for everyone, the people around him are not just mere flesh walking around. They are actually souls with an eternal destiny on the line. He says, everyone around me now are people that God died for and people that God loved. And I am motivated so they can hear about Jesus because their souls are going to one day either exist in hell apart from Jesus or in heaven with Jesus. And I want them to meet Jesus. They're not just flesh. They are souls. And I think many of us struggle with that. I know I do. How often do I walk my neighborhood and I see my neighbors and I wave at them, we chit chat, right? And so often I just view them, they're other flesh, right? They're other people. But when have I stopped and reminded myself, and maybe you need to do this too, that those are souls. Those are souls that Christ loves. Those are souls that Christ died for. Those are souls that are going to spend an eternity apart from him if they don't place their faith in Jesus. And we have been given the awesome opportunity and privilege to go share the gospel with them, not just mere flesh, but souls that Christ loves. You know, think about our theme this year on mission. Why are we on mission as a church? If everyone else was just flesh and one day they were going to cease to exist, why the heck be on mission? Don't waste your time. But if other people are souls, they're people that will spend an eternity apart from Christ if they don't know Jesus, that's why we're on mission, because those are souls. We regard them not just as flesh. That's what Paul's saying. So Paul says, my perspective has changed. And then I love the way Paul ends this in verse 17. He says, you know what? Let me just say this. Everything has changed. I don't need to keep giving you examples. He just says, you know what? My entire being, everything that I am, my whole person has been changed because of Jesus. He said in verse 17, let me remind you, it's on the screen again. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul says, I'm a new creation. My life has been flipped upside down. Everything has changed. My old life is gone. A new life has started. That's the life I am stepping into. And let me just tell you, if you're a Christian this morning, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that is true for you as well. That's true for me. That my old life is gone, that I have been given new life in Jesus. And every day I get the privilege to step into that new identity, that new life. The old life, who I was before Christ is gone. I can step into the new creation that God has made me into. And that new creation, you have a new identity, you have new motives, you have a new worldview, you have new convictions. Everything is new, and that has been given to you to enjoy and to live out every single day. You know, this reminds me of something we're going to celebrate here in a few weeks, uh, and that's Juneteenth. And unfortunately, many people don't know a lot about Juneteenth. I know I recently, over the last couple of years, started learning more about it, but it's a beautiful day. That means so much to our brothers and sisters of color. It should mean a lot to us uh, all uh, across our nation, across our world. But if you don't know about Juneteenth, basically in 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And that freed enslaved people held in the Confederate States. Now, during that time, obviously, news didn't spread very fast. And so it took a long time for that news of freedom to spread across those states. And during that time, unfortunately, a lot of slave owners... They didn't want the news to be passed on to their slaves. And so they kept it from their slaves because they wanted to ensure they had a labor force. And they did that selfishly. They did it out of a heart of anger and hatred. This was particularly so in the westernmost state of Texas. And so it took a long time for the news to get there that those enslaved people were actually free, that they could go enjoy a new life. And it wasn't until June 19th, Juneteenth, 
1865 that Union troops eventually marched into Galveston Bay, Texas, and they announced to those enslaved people, they are free. And I want you just for a minute to put yourself in the shoes of those enslaved people in Texas, people who were free. Legally, they had freedom. They could go, but they didn't know that. They were held, held in bondage, held in chains to their old identity. And when that news came, you are free. At that moment, they could leave their old life behind. They could leave that slavery, and they could step into a whole new life. And the reason I tell you that is because that is a perfect picture of what Christ has done for us. See, the Bible says before we came to Christ, we were slaves. And the Bible uses that imagery, I think, because it's important, because we were truly enslaved. We were slaves to our sin. We were slaves to the world. We were slaves to the enemy. We were helpless. But when Christ died and we place our faith in him, at that moment, that slavery, that old life is done away with. We're created into a new person and we get, we've been given new life where there's freedom. And all we have to do is step into that new life. And for some of you in this room, there is something holding you back in that old life. You have been freely given new life in Christ. Christ says, you are new. You have freedom. Step into it. But there is something holding you back. Maybe it's a particular sin. Maybe it's a lie that the enemy is keeping in your head that you keep saying and believing over and over. Maybe it's a temptation. Maybe it's people you're around. Something is holding you in slavery to your old life. And Jesus says, I have given you new life. You're a new creation. You can leave that behind. That's gone. Step into your new life in Christ. It's yours. I gave it to you as a gift. And Paul says that motivated him. That new life that he's been given in Jesus motivated him to keep leaning in, to keep following Jesus, to keep serving him with his ministry. And so as we think about those three motivators from Paul, let me give them to you again. But Paul says, I was motivated by fear of the Lord, love of Christ, and a new life. And here's the thing. I think we too, like I said, we should be motivated by these. Now, so often we go back to the other list, right? We're motivated by money, success, what other people think, all of that. But what would it look like this week if you were motivated by these things? Think about the decisions you would make and how it would impact your decisions. Think about how it would impact your life if those were the three things you were motivated by this week. That you were motivated by the fact that God, he knows you. And you can have a holy reverence and respect for who he is and his authority and his love and justice and goodness and all of that. You fear him. You have a respect of that. What if you're motivated by the love of Christ, that he demonstrated that love by dying for you, and you want to live in response to that? And what if you're motivated by the new life you've been given, that you want to step into that new identity every single day, leave the old behind, you're a new creation, step into the new? And I'll be honest, that's hard. Uh, I'm going to be the first one to tell you, I, I will be motivated by the other things before those things. And so I need the Lord to help me. And so we want to go to him and say, Lord, help us be motivated by the right things. And so let's pray that, and then we're going to respond in song and ask him to help us do just that. So let's go to the Lord together. God, we thank you. Thank you so much for uh, your word. We thank you that your word gives us, God, everything we need to know about following you and living for you. And Lord, we thank you for this passage, that you lay it out very clearly, that God, that we can be motivated by a lot of things. But God, there's a couple of really important things to be motivated by. And I pray this week, myself, this church, God, that we'd be motivated by the fear of the Lord, that we respect and have a reverence for who you are, that yes, we will stand before you one day, give an account, but also that you know us, that you know us better than anyone else, and that can give us confidence. God, also, I pray that we'd be motivated by the love of Christ, that we would every single day 
be reminded of what you did through your son Jesus so that we could be right with you. And the only response we have to that is we'll live for you every day. And Father, help us to be motivated by the new life that you've freely given us freedom. You've given us a new identity and we can step into that every single day, every single moment. God, we say, help us. We need you. We need you every step of the way. God, as we sing that together, I pray that's our prayer. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.